Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 1. Hear God's holy, inerrant word. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who was from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God, to kill and make alive, that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please, let him come to me, and he shall know that there was a prophet in Israel. The Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean." But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over this place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Arbana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, when I bowed on in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that as we dig into it, that our hearts might be stirred, that you would transform our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. We truly believe that your word is sufficient to sanctify us, to cause us to be more and more conformed to your image. That is our desire. So we pray that you would be pleased with our continued worship as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I think most of us want our lives to count for something. And if we feel like we're not accomplishing much in life, we feel discouraged. 
Uh, if you're an invalid on a bed, you might feel like your options are extremely limited. If you are stuck in a really bad marriage, you may feel like your productivity has been drained way down. If you're a little child, you might feel like nobody listens to me. My brothers don't listen to me, my parents don't listen to me, and I can't really have uh, much of an impact. If you're an employee in a giant corporation, you might feel like you're such a tiny cog in the whole machinery, what you're accomplishing doesn't really affect much at all. And I think most of us feel from time to time, what can little old me do to restore America uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ? We sometimes feel insignificant in the things that we are engaged in. Out in Ethiopia, uh, my parents knew her better than I did, but uh, there was a little uh, girl who was one of the first converts to Christ uh, in one of the villages that my parents worked with, and she felt she would talk to people and they wouldn't listen to her. Uh, the girls were not meant to be uh, heard, they were meant to be even not even seen, stay out of sight. And she wondered, what can I do to impact others for Christ? Because the Lord had laid on her heart a real burden to uh, share with the Lord. Well, one day she was out gathering firewood and she was on her way back and was caught in a storm and it was cold. It was a really cold, rainy day. And as she was coming back, she slipped in the mud. Her feet went up in the air. She hit her head on a stone and knocked herself completely out. She doesn't know how long she was out. It must have been for quite a, a long time. But uh, when she came to, there was a leopard that was lying on top of her, breathing right into her face. Now, amazingly, she didn't start screaming and freak out. Uh, she just lay there and said, Lord, thank you that I'm saved and I'm ready to go to heaven if you want this leopard to eat me. But I have lots of relatives. I have people in my village who don't know about you. Would you please make this leopard go away? Immediately, the leopard got up, walked away. She got up on her elbow to watch it walking away. It turned around, looked at her for a bit, then went on a little bit further, turned around, looked at her for a little bit, and then walked off into the woods. Now, you can bet she was rejoicing in the Lord's provision for one thing, uh, she might have had hypothermia and the cold there, except for this leopard the Lord sent as a provision to keep her nice and warm. Uh, he must have been there quite a while because uh, her foot was completely rubbed raw with the tail switching back and forth across one of her uh, feet. And she saw God is a God who answers prayer, really powerful. So she went back to her family. Her family was worried sick about her because uh, she had not come back that that night <clears throat> and um, she told them what had happened and her whole family came to Christ as a result of her testimony there were many in that village that came to Christ as well and um, she had thought what can I do I'm just such an insignificant little person and yet the Lord used that testimony to show yes even little girls uh, have a very important place in God's kingdom. Um, it's certainly true of the little girl in 2 Kings chapter 5. As a result of just a few words that escaped from her lips, Naaman became a genuine, true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And as a result of Naaman's influence, the king Ben-Hadad acknowledged in chapter 8 that the God of Israel is the true God of all the earth. It doesn't appear that he became a genuine believer, but he at least respected biblical religion and stopped fighting with Israel. So there was peace, wars had been done away with for a period of time, and Elisha was able to travel uh, into uh, Syria. But what a privilege it was to know that there would be people in heaven because of her, because of her witness. Now today I want to look not so much, I debated how much emphasis am I going to be giving to missions outreach, uh, how much on her transformation. I think I'm going to only marginally talk about a missions outreach, and I want to talk about the incredible impact that the Lord had upon this little girl's heart to transform her in a way where she was willing to be used in any way that God wanted her to be used. And I would challenge you this morning to take seriously all ten points of the attitudes that God formed in this little girl because I think if every one of us could embrace these points, we would be a major powerhouse in this, in this city. I think it could transform uh, the way that our church would impact uh, life around us. <clears throat> This is a story about the maid in Syria. And it's a play on words because she was made by the Lord uh, in the country of Syria. And I want you to start by just reading between the lines a little bit. Do a little bit of sanctified reasoning with me and imagine what this little girl's aspirations were. I think you can guarantee she did not aspire, oh, I wish I could grow up to be a slave. I don't think so. Her aspirations were likely, I would love to get married and have a little cottage by the seaside or maybe up in the woods and I'd love to be able to have a table big enough where we could have hospitality. She had aspirations for something quite different than what the Lord had prepared her for. And the reason I bring this up, this issue of aspirations, is that there are some of you who are disappointed with where you're at in life. You are disappointed with what God has taken you. He's taken you on a detour away from what you had really desired to be. And what I want to point out is that God can make your life count if your heart is captured by the Lord. It counted not because this girl was successful in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of the world, she was nothing. Uh, her life counted because... Uh, she was crafted by God. And I believe that missions is first and foremost an issue of the heart, not an issue of where your residence is. It is an issue of the heart. Now let's take a look at each of these ten points. First thing I think we need to ask the Lord for is, Lord, make me be like this girl and more concerned about the needs of others than I am about my own needs. Paul says, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Okay, well, that's nice in theory. Easier said than done, though, and especially in the case of this little girl. This girl could so easily have been wrapped up in self-pity, in bitterness, in anger, in introspection about her own hurts and needs that she could have been completely blind to the needs of Naaman and the needs of his wife that uh, obviously was distraught by what had happened. 
And I think this has probably happened to you. It's happened to me in the past where you become so caught up in your own needs that you don't recognize, you don't even recognize the enormous needs that are around you. Let's, let's consider her difficulties. Verse 2 says, And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Sermon's, uh, Naaman's wife, then she said to her mistress, now the implication seems to be that not a whole lot of time had gone by since she had been taken captive. Now you children, just imagine that you have been snatched away, kidnapped from your parents. You've been sent off to some other country, maybe Peru or something like that. You don't even know if your parents are alive, whether they're worrying about you. You are certainly sick with worry about them. You've been through war. You have experienced... Uh, horrific suffering. You've seen the pain and disaster and death around you. You've been now on a long journey and you are emotionally spent. You feel very lonely and now you are forced to work for your captors. What would you feel like if you discovered suddenly that your mistress's husband had gotten this dreaded disease, leprosy? I mean, be honest with yourself. You probably wouldn't be too concerned. Right? You'd probably wish that she'd get it too. I mean, it's like, yeah, they deserve it. That, that's probably the first impact that would happen to, to some of us. And I want you to realize her concern, and she definitely has concern, is not natural. This is something God-given. Okay? It is remarkable she even notices his misery, let alone that she cares about it. If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And I would encourage you, if you don't have this kind of a concern for those who are around you, or you've been blinded and uh, you, you have been so wrapped up in your own hurts and your own miseries to say, Lord, would you give me this kind of a supernatural attitude? I can't do it on my own. But would you give me an ability to no longer wallow in self-pity, to have an attitude that puts others ahead of myself? You do this, you're going to start seeing things transformed in your own life, but you'll certainly begin to see opportunities around you. For sure, your life will count. The second principle is that you must not be ashamed of God. When she said, if only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, she was basically saying, you know, the prophets of Syria, they don't have the right message and they don't have the right God. It was a bold contrast between the impotence of the gods of Syria who could not heal Naaman and the incredible power of the God of Israel. Okay, now she worded it tactfully. She was very respectful in the way that she said it, but really she was taking risks for the honor of God, the risk of offending. She was not ashamed of the gospel. What about you? Are you ashamed to mention Christ to those who are around you? I think sometimes our kids catch some of the shame from us as adults. I had a a friend who was telling me about how he was like, ooh, cringing, because his kids were singing in the grocery store, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he's thinking, yeah, what are they going to be thinking about us? Are we wackos or something? And he's thinking to himself, why am I ashamed of that? I ought to be proud of my kids to be utterly bold for the cause of Christ. 
I mean, this has happened to us as well. I remember when our kids were really young, we had some Roman Catholic neighbors, and I'm cringing as I'm hearing my kids telling our neighbor's kids, uh, you guys are going to hell unless you repent. You should not worship Mary. That is idolatry, and they're going, <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, you could be a little bit more tactful in the way you say it, but what they're saying is true. So I did not want to in any way hamper or dull their enthusiasm for Christ. But I think there are times where our kids over time, they catch, you know, mom and dad, they seem to be quiet anytime there is an unbeliever around there. I think we need to learn boldness from our children. Our Lord said, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying about that mage? He is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We have totally upside down priorities in our lives when we think we're great for other reasons. He says, no, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We must not be ashamed of Christ. Third principle is we must be convinced that God has the answers to all of the questions that this world asks. Uh, as I'll mention in a moment, many Christians are not convinced of this, and I believe they miss missions opportunities that God has providentially placed into their lives all the time. God had providentially placed a need into Naaman's life, and this girl is encouraging him to go to the Lord for the Lord to answer that need. You can do that. You can just say, well, let's pray about it. Maybe somebody, one of your neighbors is sick, and you say, can I pray for you? That's uh, one thing that, uh, by the way, one of the things I found in our old neighborhood when we went door to door and just said, we have a prayer meeting and uh, we're gathering prayer requests, you have anything that you want us to pray for, they love to be prayed for. Even people who don't believe in God, for some reason, they love to be prayed for. And they'll give you all kinds of prayer requests and you can go back and say, hey, did you, your prayer request get answered? But that's at least something that you can do. Now, her attempt to get Naaman to look to God almost got derailed in verses 5 through 7. So, so the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now he's looking to the state rather than to God for the solution to his problems. And unfortunately, this is exactly what most evangelicals nowadays do. They look to the federal government to be the Messiah for health issues and financial issues and all kinds of issues. We're not used to going immediately to the Lord. So I think it's rather significant. She sends him to God. He goes to the state, but it goes on. So he departed, took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. He's hoping to buy his way out of this predicament. And I think we have a tendency to do the same thing. What can we in our own resources do? Now in this story, God brings him to the place where he realizes, I can't do it. Only God can do it. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. He realizes without Christ I can do nothing. Verse 6 goes on. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Now both the king and Naaman looked to the power of man for healing. Verse 7 indicates the king himself lacked the faith of this little maid. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to be he heal him of his leprosy? Therefore please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. 
So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please, let him come to me, and he shall know that there was a prophet in Israel. Uh, okay, so the, the, the bottom line is God tailors all of our circumstances in such a way where he gives us opportunities. The question is, are we taking advantage of those opportunities that God throws into our lives? All of us have those opportunities. Now bear in mind, God's not brought a Naaman into your life, but he may have brought a person who's just gone through an abortion or is considering going through an abortion, and he's brought you there with a heart of compassion, but also a principled heart from the scripture to be able to minister into that situation. Or maybe somebody's grieving over the loss of a loved one. Or maybe somebody is lonely, or he's a compulsive gambler. And even if you cannot meet the need yourself, this girl could not meet the need, you can do exactly like this girl did and say, I want you to go to the prophet Elisha. Now, how can you send somebody to the prophet Elisha? Well, let me give you an illustration of how somebody did it. Uh, a friend of mine got saved this way, actually. He was uh, one of... Um, with people in our dorm in Covenant College, uh, he said he was in a financially horrible time and was trying to understand what was going wrong in his finances, and a Christian friend of his gave him Gary North's book, Introduction to Biblical Economics. Now you might think, economics has nothing whatsoever to do with the gospel, but this man was so blown away by seeing how the Bible was sufficient to answer all of his economic questions that he began, because his felt need had been ministered to, he began to ask God, Lord, can you minister to the emptiness that was in, within my soul? So that book, Introduction to Biblical Economics, brought him to salvation, okay? And you can do, you can do this. Uh, the um, temporal problems that are around you are manifold, and uh, I have seen people who have been saved because somebody sent them for marriage counseling, or somebody has sent them for something else. Now the point is, you need to be convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that God's Word has answers to man's most asked questions, and once you are convinced of that, you're going to be realizing, oh yeah, 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 the Bible has the answer to that. And the Bible has the answer to that. You're going to see these opportunities all of the time to directing people to God. How can you send, how can you send a Naaman to the prophet in Israel? Well, I would encourage every one of you to begin developing a library, a lending library. Have your own library, because people don't tend to return books when you lend your own library. But have a lending library with maybe two or three copies of books in it that cover, you know, a wide spectrum of life and hand it to a guy and say, you know, this is a book that's had a tremendous impact on me and I would love you to read it and after you've read two or three chapters, why don't we get together and discuss it? Or lend a video, you know, a DVD. Uh, it's becoming harder to lend out tapes because people don't even have tape players, but you can lend out things like this. Now make sure, though, that you're sending people to the prophet in Samaria, not to the king of Samaria. King doesn't have any answers. You've got to send them to somebody who knows the word of God, right? And there's a lot of books out there that claim to have the answers, but they're not the word of God. They're not giving biblical answers. And so you want to make sure they are biblical books 
not uh, unbiblical books. And there are biblical books on marriage, economics, politics, education, welfare, you name it. There are really, really good books out there. One that you could start with, it's a little bit dated, but it's Russ Walton's book, um, Biblical Answers to Contemporary Problems. And it deals with a lot of political kinds of answers, but it's just a remarkable book that shows the problem, shows the failed solutions, shows what the biblical solution would be. And uh, there's various ways in which you can send someone to the prophet in Samaria. But if you're convinced that God is the solution to the world's problems, you're going to see a lot more missions opportunities. Fourth principle is that your life of service must match up with your words of service. You've got to have a lifestyle that matches your words. For example, if you uh, give a book on how to have a fantastic marriage, uh, to somebody whose marriage is messed up, but your marriage is all messed up too. It's not going to be very good advertising, right? Uh, and so let's consider this girl. Why would this woman even listen to her? Nobody has ever been healed of, prophet, uh, of leprosy in the past, right? If she had ever proved to be a liar, her word would have been doubted right off the bat. If she had been lazy, maybe she might have thought, well, she's just trying to get out of work. If she had been bitter or angry, vindictive she might have said she was just trying to play a cruel joke on me in other words this girl's lifestyle was something that gave credence to her words that's what we're saying here okay now i'll clarify god does not expect you to be perfect in order for you to hand out a book on marriage what you can even say is, look, we're still struggling through a lot of things, but this book has helped us enormously, and I would encourage you to read it and start applying the principles of this book into your life because you admit now that you've blown it, but you know exactly what to do when you've blown it. Here is the solutions I've gotten. Here is the progress that I have made. Oh, all of a sudden, your life has enormous credibility. If you've never had a problem, they may not take you seriously, but now... Because you've gone through problems and you've seen the solutions actually work in your life, they're going to take you seriously. A good lifestyle without testimony does not save, and a testimony without the lifestyle to back it up is empty. Another condition we must have is a burden for the lost. The Hebrew in verse 3, for if only, is the Hebrew word achale, achale. It's, a, it's a, an interjection that always shows a burdened heart. It's usually actually translated, oh, that, with an exclamation mark. Oh, that, my master was with the prophet. Brothers and sisters, there needs to be more oh in the gospel. Not an academic thing, but a heart burden. And we need to say, Lord, my heart is not burdened. I want to be burdened. I want your compassion to flow through me because, again, on all of these points, we're talking about the supernatural grace of the Holy Spirit transforming us, making us into something that is different. A burden clears our eyesight. It makes us see the opportunities. The sixth principle is we must not give in to resentment. Now, I've already kind of touched on this a little bit, but if you were kidnapped and sent off to Cuba and... Uh, you're a slave for Mrs. Castro, and she's making you wash her hair and sweep the floors and change the baby's diapers, and now you cook a meal for me, and, uh, and then 
when you start crying, when you remember your parents, she says, cut it out. I want you to be happy. And if you don't have anything to be, ha- I'll give you something to be sorry about, you know? And it's every day, work, work, work. And then you discover that your, your mistress's husband has leprosy. I think we would think he deserves it. This is God's judgment upon him. And yes, it might be God's judgment upon him. But you know what the supernatural grace of the Lord Jesus Christ does? It takes away bitterness that is so wrapped up in justice and what injustice has been done to me. And instead of being overcome by evil, it overcomes evil with good. Um, I don't think it's natural for this girl to say, oh, that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. We have this tendency when we get bitter to become blind to the needs of others. Bitterness has destroyed the effectiveness of so many people. And I won't get into how you overcome bitterness. I've got a whole book on how to overcome bitterness. But the homework I would give you is just take Romans chapter 12, read verses 9 through 21, and practice every verse asking God, say, I can't do this verse, but Lord, would you enable me when people curse me to bless them, when people do wicked, evil things against me to do really nice things for them. To not be overcome by evil, but to declare a war of love on those that are doing these things to me. Why? You do not want to be controlled by your enemies. You do not want to be overcome. You do not want that bitterness in your heart. You need to say, Lord, I'm not sufficient for this, but you've called me to live in the realm of the supernatural. Give me this love for others. Seventh principle, don't offer excuses as to why you can't be involved in missions. Now, if you're looking for excuses as to why you shouldn't have to be a witness, you can always manufacture those excuses. It's very, very easy. And I think if anybody could have been absolved from the responsibility of being a witness, it would be this little girl here. In the Syrian culture, girls were generally meant to be seen, not heard. Text says she was young. Youngsters don't have to witness, do they? But Scripture says you children can be missionaries to those who are around you. I mean, just think about it. When you've got visitors coming into the church here, you know what it's like. You've seen them off in the the distance, the family standing there, not quite knowing what to do, and the, the young kids don't know how to break the ice and fit in. You need to make a beeline for those people and start ministering to them. That is being a missionary. It's reaching out. It's thinking of the concerns of others more than of your own, okay? This is the kind of heart that we are talking about. Don't give excuses. She was a captive. Ah, there's a fantastic excuse. I am a captive to my circumstances. You've heard people uh, say that probably. I'm a captive. And you might think, oh yeah, Lord, I would be a much better witness if you would change the miserable circumstances that I'm in. And I would engage in hospitality, Lord, if you would give me a much bigger house, maybe a 10,000 square foot house. Liar, liar, pants on fire. If you're not using the 600 square foot house as a hospitality outreach, you're not going to use it if you get 10,000 square feet. Okay, you might think, if only I had the gift of gab, if only I was a more outgoing personality, Uh, and I'm here to tell you, 
if you recognize your weakness, you're probably in a better place to be used supernaturally by the Holy Spirit because now you recognize I can't depend on myself, I have to depend on the Holy Spirit than if you were outwardly vivacious and were able to engage in witness. Um, when the Christian realizes that every circumstance is tailor-made by God, that's what Romans 8:28 says, you're going to quit thinking of yourself as a victim of your circumstances. I, it, when I first became Reformed, I began to see my circumstances as victims of God's providence, captives to God's providence. And you might just think of Paul and Silas. They get thrown into jail and the enemy's rubbing his hands and thinking, good, they're out of business. And Paul and Silas, they're singing hymns to God. And, and Paul, you know, he's rejoicing. He's thinking, ah, yes, I'd never be able to reach these people if I wasn't in jail. And they're a captive audience. This guard can't get away. He's chained to me. Day and night I can be witnessing to this guard. You know what Paul said about himself? He did not see himself as being a prisoner of Rome. He calls himself instead a prisoner of Jesus. Jesus wanted him in that jail because Jesus wanted him winning those people to Christ. And he used those circumstances realizing, Lord, you've put me here. There must be some reason why you want me in this miserable place, but I'm not going to treat it as miserable. I'm going to treat it as an opportunity to serve you. And you know, as a result of that, there were many of the Praetorian Guard that came to Christ. And through the Praetorian Guard, there were many in Caesar's household that came to Christ. The circumstances are captive to Christ. You should not see yourself as a victim, as a captive to your circumstances. No excuses. This maid knew that God was sovereign. Of all the times in Israel's history to be born, God had her born at a time when Syria was in the ascendancy. And probably she was hiding out from these people. And maybe she came out of hiding thinking maybe they're gone. And nope, they saw her. She came out at just the wrong time. He kept her from being sold until Naaman's wife saw her and wanted her. And um, he kept Naaman from getting leprosy until just the perfect time. She saw herself as one of God's threads in his sovereign tapestry of life. And I'm convinced that only a supreme confidence in God could cause her to have such an attitude of contentment to her master and to her circumstances. The eighth principle is that we must develop an eye for opportunities to witness. Anybody here remember Jim Moss? He's one of the most remarkable people. He was a member of our previous church, uh, retired missionary, and this guy saw opportunities to witness everywhere. I mean, I just stood in awe and amazement at this man. I remember one time we were emptying out Jim Schaefer's house. He was moving uh, to another property. My first load of things that I'm carrying out, and he's following, I'm thinking, He's already talking about the gospel. He had transitioned from something I would never have even thought of as a Sedgway into the gospel and was talking very naturally and the, the pagan that was with him just seemed it was the most natural thing in the world as well. Now, not everybody's as gifted. He had the gift of evangelism. But the point is we ought to have eyes for opportunities and say, Lord, I tend to be blind. I tend to miss these opportunities. Help me to be much more quick to recognize 
these opportunities to share about you. The ninth principle of missions is that we must have faith in God's ability to do the impossible. To put it into modern language, we need to have faith that God can change the heart of that terrible neighbor or that impossible relative. So at this point, we don't have any record of lepers being healed, but that was not an obstacle for this girl. She said, oh, that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Now, what on earth made her make such an audacious claim? If she had said Phil Kaiser would be able to heal her, I think that would be audacious. If she had said the king of Israel could heal, that would be audacious. But actually, I don't think it was audacious at all for her to say this. And let me just review some of the history she had already witnessed in Israel uh, in, in the life of Elisha. In chapter 2 of this book, in verse 14, Elisha parted the Jordan River, walked through on dry land. Which is harder, to command a person to be healed or to part the Jordan River? Then... In chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, he heals the waters, poisoned waters of the bad spring. Chapter 2, verses 22 through 25, he sicks two female bears on 42 juvenile delinquents. Now, which is harder, to command two bears you've never seen before or to command the microbes, you know, that are causing leprosy? Um, let me give you a couple of other examples. In chapter 3, he shows Israel and Judah how to destroy Moab's armies, and he does it in a miraculous way. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, he performs the miracle of the constantly replenishing oil. Remember that flask of oil? She's pouring it out. They keep bringing more and more vessels, and it keeps filling up. Filling. I mean, that would be faith-inspiring, would it not? In chapter 4, verse 8 and following, you have the raising of the Shumanite's dead son, which is harder to raise somebody from the dead or to keep a person from dying, you know, who's got leprosy. I think this girl's got her head screwed on right. I don't think this was audacious at all. Chapter 4, verses 38 through 41, we have Elisha neutralizing poison that the prophets had already eaten. They're on their way to dying much faster than Naaman was. So the point is, after seeing all of these miracles, this maid had no doubt in her mind that Naaman could, excuse me, Elisha could heal Naaman if God so willed it. And by the way, Elisha had already pronounced God's judgments upon Israel and talked about his mercies to the Gentiles. That's one of the reasons why Jesus used Elisha uh, in his ministry and why the Pharisees got so upset. She knew it was God's will for his mercies to flow beyond the borders of Israel. Christ said, if we have faith as small as a grain of mustard seed, we can say to a mountain, be plucked up and it'll be plucked up. It's not the amount of faith, it's the presence of faith and whether we use it or not. And such faith can be used to turn the hardest hearts. I, I do find it remarkable. God uses the faith of others to save people. Remember that man who was lowered down uh, out of the, they, they tore up the roof, they lowered, and it says, Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. So their faith in some way resulted in this man's salvation. And we've seen this happen, hardened hearts. God is so powerful, he can change a cult into an Orthodox church. It's happened in America, Worldwide Church of God. He, he used two of us in a country which I won't name right now uh, to pull 
hundreds and hundreds of churches out of a cult and establish them in the Orthodox. God can do things like this. He can convert nations just like he converted Nineveh, and he's done so a number of times. So are we convinced our God is the God of the impossible? The last issue that was in place in this girl's life was submission. And we've already seen that she submitted to God's providence without growing bitter. And by the way, that's how you know if you've submitted to God's providence or not. You get bitter and angry about it? Nah, you're not submitted yet. If there is bitterness, guaranteed, you are not submitted to God yet. But she also submitted to the human authorities placed over her. Verse 2 says she served Naaman's wife. She served her master. Now let me make something clear. She served her master, but not her master's gods. That's a very, very important clarification that hyper-patriarchs sometimes don't get. Uh, it is not an absolute submission in any sphere of life that God commands. It's always submission in the Lord. Whether we are submitting to civil governments, submitting wives to husbands, submitting to elders, uh, all submission is submission in the Lord. But here's the point. God does call us to submission. Are we willing to submit to authorities that are under us? If not, then we're maybe deceiving ourselves if we think that we're submitting to God. And how do we tell if we're submitting to God? Well, when he prompts you to witness, when he prompts you to repent, do you do so immediately? A life that is devoted to the Lord is a life that will count for eternity, no matter how small your circumstances might be. And God calls us to serve him faithfully, and the results could be left up to him. And I started this message by asking if you felt insignificant in any way, different areas of life. That's not a disqualification from being used. In fact, the more insignificant and the more weak you feel, Paul says, the more likely you are to recognize your need of the Lord and to experience his strength in weakness. One person with God is a majority. You've heard that, right? Well, just think of this. One weakling with God is almighty. You may feel like a weakling, but if God is with you, who can be against you? Don't bail out on your responsibilities because of your insignificance. Instead, find significance in the Lord Jesus Christ. And my charge to you is to be willing to be used by God in whatever way that he chooses. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would stir our hearts with it and enable us to be completely sold out to you in every area of life. Sanctify us. Cause us to grow and mature in you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn of response. Uh, as soon as I said the benediction and the meeting is closed, stay in your, don't play the, any postlude, Kathy, after this. Uh, I'm going to be introducing a, um, uh, some of the people in our church who are involved in a ministry. So let's stand as we sing this. <laughs>